Um, uh, I'm excited. Uh, Rob, I've heard of Rob before. I haven't, don't think I've ever met him in person. Uh, we met in the foyer about 10 minutes ago, and then I heard him talk. Um, but uh, other than that, Rob is, has been the preacher at the Grover Beach Church of Christ for 35 years, almost 10 years longer than I've been alive. So he's been around a long time, um, uh, and uh, I don't know if I'm doing this right or not. Okay, all right. This is slippery. Um, and uh, this is his fourth time here, so I don't think he needs much of an introduction. Uh, other than that, we're excited to hear what you have to say tonight, brother. Thank you, brother. I was just thinking how old I was when you were talking about that. <laughs> Find a Bible or open a Bible to Esther in the Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Well, I've been assigned, or I volunteered, to take this particular topic. What do we learn about God in the book of Esther? Well, if you look for the word God in the book of Esther, you'll be looking a long time because it's not there. Only one book, other book, doesn't have the name of God, and that's the Song of Solomon. And yet there are certain translations that do uh, put the word Lord in there, um, but some translations don't believe that that's a correct translation. So... In essence, it all depends on the translation that you read, whether or not you make that statement that Esther is the only book that doesn't have the name of God in it. But not only is God's not mentioned, God's name is not mentioned, nor is prayer, a prophet, no mention of a priesthood, altar, sacrifice, no mention of a Sabbath or any holy day of the Jews. And some scholars say this is one of the most secular books in the Bible and doesn't, it doesn't even belong in the Bible. Well, obviously it is in the Bible and it is one, what we call canonicity, it belongs in the Bible. And as a matter of fact, around 250 B.C., this particular Hebrew text was translated into Greek. And uh, the Greek is a little um, larger in content because they added a lot and interpolated a lot. But I think the Septuagint, as it is called, I'm sure Cliff has mentioned to you, but in the Greek translation of chapter 10 and verse 2, these are the words, and I translate, these things have been done of God. The Jews felt these things that happened in the book of Esther, these things have been done of God. Now, chronology is quite, quite interesting because although Esther comes in third place of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, actually, chronologically, Esther comes before Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther assumed her position as queen 
about 20 years after the temple was rebuilt. And then Ezra went to Babylon, oh, I would say probably another 10 years after. And then we find that the wall uh, that Nehemiah built was, was built probably another 20 years later. So what we have here is an interesting uh, position of the book of Esther. It actually fits in Ezra between chapter 6 and 7. Now, the Persian king here in verse 1 pronounced Ahasuerus, or however you want to pronounce it. I don't know where they got that word because the Hebrew pronunciation is Akashwerosh. Well, it doesn't make any difference because he's known as Xerxes, the king of Persia. And he's the king whose soldiers fought the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae and later withdrew because of his defeat. And these events took place around 480 B.C., just a few years before Esther became queen, around 478 B.C. Every reference work I checked, they use the same dates, so they're pretty accurate in determining the post-captivity uh, uh, dates. It's interesting that Xerxes was assassinated in 465 by a commander of the royal bodyguard, and he reigned about 21 years from 486 to 465, and he died around 53 years of age. If you were living at this particular time as a Jew in this distant land, having been under the control of the Babylonians and now under the control of the Persians, and discovered that there was an edict made by the king to have you all destroyed as a people, you'd need some assurance that things will work out. Mordecai believed it would. Mordecai, being the adoptive father of Esther, believed that it would. But he wasn't sure exactly how or how many lives would be lost. And this is the implication of the major text, chapter 4, 13 and 14. We'll look at that in a moment. We too must remember the promises given to the Jews. God wasn't done with them yet. And yet the book of Esther holds the reader in suspense. Will the Jews be destroyed by this edict that was made by the king? That was promoted by Haman, his prime minister. But yet Isaiah prophesied in chapter 4 and verse 17, No weapon has been fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And obviously, Isaiah continues in chapter 64.10, declaring the end from the beginning, ancient times, things that have not been yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And we find that Jeremiah predicted the number of years they would be in captivity, chapter 25, verse 12, 70 years. Isaiah, in chapter 44 and 45, predicted the coming of Cyrus the Great, the great deliverer, and used the same term as the Messiah to describe Cyrus the Great who would deliver his people. And Jeremiah stated twice these words in chapter 30 and 46. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. 
nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar off, and our offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you, and I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will, make a, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. You see, we are reading history here, sacred history, the book of Esther, how that God fulfilled his promises to the Jews. If the wicked Haman had been successful and they put that edict in place to destroy the Jewish people, there would have been no Jesus. There had been no Jesus to be born to die for our sins and we would not be here today. It took a lot of faith and a lot of courage and a lot of cooperation with human beings to bring about the deliverance of the people. God worked behind the scenes as He does today, bringing about His plans. Esther and Mordecai and the Jews' victory over the planned Holocaust is our victory as well because we owe so much to their courage and to their faith in God that God would not forsake them. The story is rather simple, and I'm going to give you a running commentary. I've got about 35 minutes. And in this running commentary, I will relate the story and the providential events that obviously are looked upon by secular people as coincidences. But you know, if something happens once by accident, you say it's a coincidence, but if it happens again and again and again, you finally get your attention, right? And you finally say, hmm, God must be telling me something. So is the story of Esther. She's selected to replace the queen of Xerxes when she fell in disfavor with the king for disobeying him. They, he had a great banquet with his rulers, and he wanted to bring the queen in and display her beauty. When the eunuchs went to get her, to bring her, she refused to go. Now, I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things said about Vestai that are just assumptions. Number one, some people say, well, he wanted to parade her naked. Well, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. Number two, that she was too modest to go. It doesn't say that at all. All we find out is that she just did not go. She disobeyed the king. And because of that, his counselors recommended that she be deposed and he find a new queen. And to make the long story short, the eunuch gathered all the beautiful young maidens of the kingdom together and then obviously, you know, the beauty pageant went on and on and finally, the king decided that Esther... Esther is the one that's going to be the queen. Now, Esther did not tell him that she was Jewish. And Mordecai told her, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. So there was a little scheming there to get her elected or selected as queen. But I don't think that their motives were that pure in the sense that 
this would place Esther in a position of compromise and she was fed with the non-kosher food and unlike Daniel who refused to eat, Esther did. But yet, we should not glorify these people as perfect because they weren't. Mordecai wasn't, Esther wasn't, the king wasn't, and Haman, of course, wasn't at all. But it's quite interesting to me. You see, back in those days, the kings had a law that you marry within a certain family. And they had the seven princes, the seven heads of Persia, and that the king would select an offspring, a woman from these seven princes. This was not followed. And the king didn't even vet this woman enough to determine her nationality and her background? Was that just a coincidence? Had he found out that she was Jewish, he would not have made her queen? He would not do that. But he, wasn't, he did not vet her because her beauty blinded him and he was determined to have her as queen. Now, I see God working in that because Esther will be instrumental in delivering her people from this horrible edict. Now, Mordecai had already been a significant uh, person in the citadel of the king, and this is often overlooked by people because before Esther was taken, uh, crowned as queen, she was put in the harem. And we discover in chapter 2 and verse 11 that every day Mordecai would go into the court of the harem and watch over Esther and to keep informed what was going on. Now, could some average Joe walk in and say, I'm going to take a peek at the harem? But Mordecai was given that privilege. And so, time and again, we see him sitting at the royal gate, which suggests a position of authority. And so, how did he reach that place of authority where he could encourage Esther to try to impress the king to be appointed as queen. Did he know that God was working through him? Of course not. But God was working through him. Now, shortly after this, he was sitting at the royal gate in chapter 2, and he overheard two of the king's bodyguards planning assassination of the king. And Mordecai reported it to Esther, and she reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai, and after an investigation, the two were executed. And this later on would be a lifesaver for Mordecai. But let me ask you, if he was not there, if he did not hear, overhear this planned assassination, and the assassination took place, Esther would no longer be queen and Esther could not intercede for her people because that edict would be made sooner or later. And so God is working. In chapter 3, we are introduced to the villain Haman. 
The king appointed him as what most people call the prime minister, second only to the king. And we are also introduced to the escalation of the animosity between Haman and the Jews, and Mordecai in particular. Now, all, uh, all the subjects were ordered by the king to pay honor and bow down to Haman. Now, obviously Haman wasn't held in high regard if you're going to have to command somebody to honor one of your appointees, right? As a matter of fact, Haman was an Amalekite. You remember the Amalekites that came out and attacked Israel coming out of Egyptian bondage? And how many people lost their lives? And then you remember where Saul refused to destroy Agag, their king, and as a result, Samuel had to do it. And if you would Google, or if you would search in your Strong's Concordance, the Amalekites or Agag, you will discover that they are constant, constant enemies of the Jews. In Exodus 17, 16, it says, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. And so there was this deep-seated animosity of Haman against the Jews because of the Jews' treatment of the Amalekites. It wasn't Mordecai's fault because he refused to bow down to uh, Haman when he was around that exacerbated this, this antagonism and resulted in this edict to destroy the whole people. He used that as an excuse to justify getting that edict passed through the king in order to destroy the Jews as an Amalekite. You see, in chapter 3, he was a fatalist. So before he went to the king, he decided to roll the dice, which is called the purr, and uh, determine the best time or date to destroy the Jews. And so it happened to be 12 months later. And so in chapter 9, uh, chapter, pardon me, 3, we discover that he goes to the king and he tells them, he says, there's a people in our kingdom that has their own laws, disobey your laws, and is not in your best interest. He told a half a lie, a lie, and a full lie. Uh, pardon me, a truth. They did have their whole, they did have their laws, but they didn't break his laws only if they conflict with the Jewish laws, and they were beneficial to his kingdom. And yet, because he didn't mention them by name, the king says, okay, it sounds like it's probably to my advantage, especially since you promised me several million dollars to put in, put in my coffer, coffers that uh, we go ahead and make this edict. So the edict was passed, and it was sent throughout the kingdom. Now, what, what is interesting here is this would not take place for 12 months later according to the rolling of the dice. And it was spread and, and put in everybody's language. And the irony of it all is that even the Jews heard about it and they were distraught so badly that they began to wail and fast and clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes. 
And we discover that ultimately Esther wanted to find out what this was, what was going on with Mordecai in doing this. And finally, Mordecai sends the message through her eunuch saying, here is a copy of the edict, and this is the amount of money Haman promised to give to the king to destroy your people. And you need to talk to the king and see if this edict can be reversed. And we find that she sent a message back saying, I can't go into the king. If I go into the king uninvited, I will lose my life. There's an edict that says, whoever goes into the throne room to see the king uninvited, die. And then this is the message, chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14. That's classic. Then Mordecai told what Esther had said. Uh, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then verse 13, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and uh, deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. But who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Several things. We see the faith of Mordecai in the promises of God to the Jewish people. We also see that if she did not assume that responsibility, she would lose her life and many other Jews would lose their lives. But ultimately, God's plan will carry on and be fulfilled. And so, she sent a message to Mordecai. Tell the people of Susa, the capital there, to fast for three days, and I and my maidens will do the same, and then I will risk my life and go in to see the king. And then in verse 16, she says, if I perish, I perish. So afterwards in chapter 5, we find that she dressed in her royal robes, and enter the king's court within the view of the king. She didn't enter into the throne room, but he could see her out in the foyer. And he invited her in and extended the golden scepter, and she touched the tip of it, and the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Is it just a coincidence that Esther was spared the day of her intrusiveness? She hadn't seen him in 30 days, and she did not know whether or not his interests had turned elsewhere. And the law was clear. And we saw what happened to Vestai for disobeying the king. And she was privy to that. But she was wise enough not to venture into the throne room uninvited. And God put into the heart of the king an interest in her concern. He could have been too busy. I don't have time for this, Esther. Go back. I'll talk to you later. But no. He asked her, what do you want? And she says, I prepared a banquet. Would you, would you come to the banquet and bring Haman along? Oh, wonderful. We'll do that. And so they went to the banquet that day. And um, the king says, Esther, 
Tell me what your request is. I'll give you half of my kingdom. Anything that you want. What do you want? She said, if it's okay with you, I'm going to have another banquet tomorrow and we'd like to invite you and Haman then and then I will tell you. And she sa- he says, sure. So we discover that um, after the meal, Haman goes home and he's just walking on cloud nine because he had been honored to be with the king and the queen in a private banquet. And then he walked by the gate and he saw Mordecai there. And he walked in the house and he told of all the favors that he was extended and then said, as long as Mordecai is there, none of that really matters. And she and the guests say, said to him, why don't you just kill him? Build a gallows and put him to death. And so he ordered the gallows built. And that night, that same night in chapter 6, the king was unable to sleep. Now he had a wonderful day, and you would think that he would be able to sleep, but he couldn't. And why do you think he couldn't sleep that night? Well, let's fast forward and see. You see, he was troubled. So he asked one of his servants to bring in the chronicles of the memorial deeds. And so he had the eunuch read him some things from the records. And it so happened that they were reading the account of Mordecai exposing this conspiracy to kill the king. And then, they asked, then he asked them, what was done with, for Mordecai for saving my life? Not a thing. Now, once again, remember what we said at the beginning, the king did not reward him at that time. Now, had he rewarded him at that time, it may not have saved Mordecai's life because Haman that morning was going to to the king and present his case against Mordecai and have him hung, hanged on the gallows. And so the king was thinking about, what can I do? What can I do for the king? And so he says, who's out in the court? Haman's out there. Well, you know why Haman's there. He says, Bring him in. So he came in, and uh, this, this is really just, really just dumbfounding because he says, hey man, I got a question for you. How should the king honor a man that he is well pleased with? Who do you think Haman thought that was about? Himself. And so he says, this is what you should do. You should take the royal ro- robe that you wear and the crown that you wear and put the man on your best steed, your horse, and let a prince take him around through the city square, speaking out loud, this is how the king honors those that he is pleased with. The king says, that's a great idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Can you imagine the humiliation Now think about the difficulty of getting Mordecai executed. So 
God in some way caused the insomnia. God in some way opened the records to the account of Mordecai saving the king's life. And it so happens that Haman just walks in. Just a coincidence? A bunch of coincidences? As a Jew who believes in God's work in the affairs of man, do you think a Jew would read this and say that this is just coincidental? Well, let's go on. Afterwards, we find that he went back home, Haman, covered his head in grief and told his wife what had happened. This is in chapter 6. And the wife and the counselors warned him that it was beginning to be his downfall and he would surely fall before Mordecai. And she seemed to be making a prophecy similar to Pilate's wife, you recall that? And so the tide was turning and God was controlling the tide. Immediately the king's servants arrived and brought him to the feast Esther prepared for the king and Haman. This is chapter 4, and it goes through chapter 10, verse 10. 7, verse 10. Esther opened up to him after the meal. The king says, now tell me. Don't hold me in suspense any longer. Tell me. What is it that you would like? And so the king demanded to know what what she wanted from him. And so Esther opened up to him and said that she and her people had been sold to be destroyed and that had it only been for slavery, she would not have said anything. But the king realized what she was saying and demanded to know the culprit who planned such a thing. And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. The king was so enraged, he walked out into the garden and cooled down. Haman threw himself at the feet of Esther. Bad idea. The king came in and saw her, him at her feet and said, Would you also molest my wife, the queen, in my presence? And one of the servants covered his head announcing his doom, and said, the gallows that Mordecai, pardon me, the gallows that Haman built in front of his house was there for Mordecai. And he says, go and hang Haman on Mordecai's gallows. And the deed was done. So the very gallows that was built for Mordecai became the instrument of Haman's death. Truly, as a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So, now you think about this for a moment. Contrary to fact. Had Haman not made such an uncontrolled appeal to Esther and kept his calm and explained to the king that he didn't know Esther was Jewish, and nor did the king know he, she was Jewish, and that his case against the Jewish people was still strong, and that the king made this edict because it made sense, he might have saved his life. 
But again, another one of those coincidences in this book that is better explained by God's providence. And so the king gave all Haman's estate to Esther, and Esther put all the estate under Mordecai's control, and the king gave Mordecai the official position of Haman as prime minister in chapter 8 of one following. And then there was still this problem of the edict. But you see, the king could not reverse an edict, and so the queen asked him to do whatever he could, and he says, well, I'll tell you what we do. We will issue an edict and send it all over the kingdom and tell the Jews that they could be empowered to defend themselves. And so they had 12 months to prepare. Remember at the beginning we mentioned that the lot came down for the day of destruction 12 months from the time the lot was cast. And so the edict would not take place for 12 months. And so it gave the Jews 12 months to prepare to defend themselves against their enemies with the king's backing. And they were victorious. Now the people were promised the possessions of the Jews, the plunder, when they destroyed the Jews, but twice in the book of Esther, after the battle, it said that the Jews took none of the possessions of the enemies that they destroyed, that they refused to take anything from them. Now, the book of Esther also declares uh, how the holiday of Purim came into existence. And they celebrate it around February or March of every year. And the book of Esther is read in the synagogue every year. And the day of Purim is a day of celebration. The day that was going to be their annihilation became their day of deliverance. And they celebrate it every year since then, proving the historicity of the book. An observation here that I think is quite significant is Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So the 12 months was an act of God. Even the rolling of the dice, the outcome was an act of God, providence. Now, you wonder, well, why didn't God just work a miracle like he did when he destroyed the Assyrians in defending the city of Jerusalem when he sent a plague among the soldiers of Assyria and miraculously destroyed them? Why didn't he do that? Let me share something with you. If you took into consideration the number of years during which the Old Testament was written, say 1,500 to 400, approximately 1,100 years, and tabulated all the miracles that took place during this roughly a, a thousand years, 95% of all the Jews that lived never saw a miracle and lived just as we do today. 
So you don't think about it. You think, oh, Old Testament time of miracles. You think miracles were happening all the time. But if you would just read the Old Testament, you'll discover that miracles were not experienced by the average, average Jew. And they lived just like us, reading the story of the miracles that happened to others in a different period of time. Now by miracle, I'm referring to the supernatural event that has no natural explanation, such as raising the dead. And as a matter of fact, these Jews may have wondered why miracles were not more common than they were, since miracles were scattered throughout that thousand-year period and not concentrated in a single century as the New Testament miracles uh, were. But the story of Joseph, the story of Ruth, the story of David, the story of Esther share a common theme of God's providence. I have a few minutes, I'm going to tell you what providence is by an example. You remember Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, don't you? Philip was in Samaria, north of Jerusalem, and the Ethiopian had been in Jerusalem and was going on the road southwest to Gaza, going back to Ethiopia. An angel appeared to Philip and was told, go south to the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so they intercepted each other. They intersected each other on the road at a particular point. And so Philip was there at that right spot to meet the Ethiopian. What was required? Perfect timing. Perfect speed for both of them. Direction. Everything synchronized so that Philip's travel and distance with the Ethiopian travel in distance had to meet perfectly for them to intersect. How did that happen? Not one supernatural event. God controlling the whole thing through providence. And we see that throughout the book of Esther. Now, what do we take from the story? God will overcome the greatest obstacles that Satan will throw and still fulfill his plan. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his will providentially. Esther wasn't perfect. Mordecai wasn't perfect, but God used them nevertheless. And another beautiful characteristic that we do see is that when individuals submit to serving the Lord, they not only are thinking about others, but through the process become spiritually mature themselves. Esther and Mordecai grew spiritually in this whole whole scenario that lasted 10 years. This is only a 10-year period. And Mordecai and Esther became far more devoted when they gave of themselves to their people rather than thinking about their own personal interests. Can we apply that lesson today? The less we think about ourselves, the more the Lord will mature us and help us develop spiritually just like those two. God can use us 
for the accomplishment of his high and holy purposes. I used to hear that in prayers when I was a kid almost every Sunday. Use us to accomplish your high and holy purposes. If God can use Esther, if God could use Joseph, if God can use Mordecai, if God can use Philip, he can use you, you, and you, and me. Do we not read in Ephesians chapter 3, the prayer of Paul, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think, to him be the glory to Christ and the church forever and ever. We've got to believe it because it's true. Now, we often minimize our place in God's plan. We often feel that only those who have a higher visibility in the church uh, matter. But Paul said in Philippians 2 and verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good purpose. So the message of Esther is you are important in his kingdom. I'm important. We have different roles to play, but we all are part of this work. We're all citizens of the king. And we all have a place in the army of God. I want to thank you very much for listening to this story. We hope that it has benefited you as it has benefited me in preparing it for you. Thank you very much.